Section 100 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2, Book the Ninth, Chapter 2. The Dregs. Gwynplaine left the house and began to explore Terenzo Field in every direction. He went to every place where the day before the tents and caravans had stood. He knocked at the stalls, though he knew well that they were uninhabited. He struck everything that looked like a door or a window. Not a voice arose from the darkness. Something like death had been there. The anthill had been raised. Some measures of police had apparently been carried out. There had been what in our days would be called a razia. Terenzo Field was worse than a desert. It had been scoured, and every corner of it scratched up, as it were, by pitiless claws. The pocket of the unfortunate fair green had been turned inside out and completely emptied. Gwynplaine, after having searched every yard of ground, left the green, struck into the crooked streets abutting on the site called East Point, and directed his steps towards the Thames. He had threaded his way through a network of lanes, bounded only by walls and hedges, when he felt the fresh breeze from the water, heard the dull lapping of the river, and suddenly saw a parapet in front of him. It was the parapet of the Ephrox stone. This parapet bounded a block of the quay, which was very short and very narrow. Under it the high wall, the Ephrox stone, buried itself perpendicularly in the dark water below. Gwynplaine stopped at the parapet, and leaning his elbows on it, laid his head in his hands and set to thinking, with the water beneath him. Did he look at the water? No. At what, then? At the shadow. Not the shadow without, but within him. In the melancholy night-bound landscape which he scarcely marked, in the outer depths which his eyes did not pierce, were the blurred sketches of masts and spars. Below the Ephric stone there was nothing on the river, but the quay sloped insensibly downwards till some distance off it met a pier at which several vessels were lying, some of which had just arrived, others which were on the point of departure. These vessels communicated with the shore by little jetties, constructed for the purpose, some of stone, some of wood, or by movable gangways. All of them, whether moored to the jetties or at anchor, were wrapped in silence. There was neither voice nor movement on board, it being a good habit of sailors to sleep when they can, and awake only when wanted. If any of them were to sail during the night at high tide, the crews were not yet awake. The hulls, like large black bubbles, and the rigging, like threads mingled with ladders, were barely visible. All was vivid and confused. Here and there a red cresset pierced the haze. Gwynplaine saw nothing of all this, what he was musing on was destiny. He was in a dream, a vision, giddy in presence of an inexorable reality. He fancied that he heard behind him something like an earthquake. It was the laughter of the lords. From that laughter he had just emerged. He had come out of it having received a blow, and from whom? From his own brother. Flying from the laughter, carrying within the blow, seeking refuge, a wounded bird in his nest, rushing from hate and seeking love, what had he found? 
darkness. No one. Everything gone. He compared that darkness to the dream he had indulged in. What a crumbling away! Gwynplaine had just reached that sinister bound, the void. The green box gone was his universe vanished. His soul had been closed up. He reflected. What could have happened? Where were they? They had evidently been carried away. Destiny had given him, Gwynplaine, a blow which was greatness. Its reaction had struck them another, which was annihilation. It was clear that he would never see them again. Precautions had been taken against that. They had scoured the fair green, beginning by Nicholas and Govicum, so that he should gain no clue through them. Inexorable dispersion. That fearful social system, at the same time that it had pulverized him in the House of Lords, had crushed them in their little cabin. They were lost. Dea was lost, lost to him for ever. Powers of heaven, where was she? And he had not been there to defend her. To have to make guesses as to the absent whom we love is to put oneself to the torture. He inflicted this torture on himself. At every thought that he fathomed, at every supposition which he made, he felt within him a moan of agony. Through a succession of bitter reflections he remembered a man who was evidently fatal to him, and who had called himself Barcalphedro. That man had inscribed on his brain a dark sentence which reappeared now. He had written it in such terrible ink that every letter had turned to fire, and Gwynplaine saw flaming at the bottom of his thought the enigmatical words, the meaning of which was at length solved. Destiny never opens one door without closing another. All was over. The final shadows had gathered about him. In every man's fate there may be an end of the world for himself alone. It is called despair. The soul is full of falling stars. This, then, was what he had come to. A vapour had passed. He had been mingled with it. It had lain heavily on his eyes. It had disordered his brain. He had been outwardly blinded, intoxicated within. This had lasted the time of a passing vapour. Then everything melted away, the vapour and his life. Awaking from the dream, he found himself alone. All vanished, all gone, all lost. Night, nothingness. Such was his horizon. He was alone. Alone has a synonym, which is dead. Despair is an accountant. It sets itself to find its total. It adds up everything, even to the farthings. It reproaches heaven with its thunderbolts and its pinpricks. It seeks to find what it has to expect from fate. It argues, weighs, and calculates, outwardly cool, while the burning lava is still flowing on within. Gwynplaine examined himself and examined his fate. The backward glance of thought. Terrible recapitulation. When at the top of a mountain we look down the precipice, when at the bottom we look up at heaven, and we say, I was there. Gwynplaine was at the very bottom of misfortune. How sudden, too, had been his fall. Such is the hideous swiftness of misfortune, although it is so heavy that we might fancy it slow. But no, 
it would likewise appear that snow from its coldness ought to be the paralysis of winter, and from its whiteness the immobility of the winding sheet. Yet this is contradicted by the avalanche. The avalanche is snow become a furnace. It remains frozen, but it devours. The avalanche had enveloped Gwynplaine. He had been torn like a rag, uprooted like a tree, precipitated like a stone. He recalled all the circumstances of his fall. He put himself questions and returned answers. Grief is an examination. There is no judge so searching as conscience conducting its own trial. What amount of remorse was there in his despair? This he wished to find out, and dissected his conscience, excruciating vivisection. His absence had caused a catastrophe. Had this absence depended on him? And all that had happened, had he been a free agent? No, he had felt himself captive. What was that which had arrested and detained him? A prison? No. A chain? No. What then? Sticky slime. He had sunk into the slow of greatness. To whom has it not happened to be free in appearance, yet to feel that his wings are hampered? There had been something like a snare spread for him. What is at first temptation ends by captivity. Nevertheless, and his conscience pressed him on this point, had he merely submitted to what had been offered him? No, he had accepted it. Violence and surprise had been used with him in a certain measure, it was true, but he, in a certain measure, had given in. To have allowed himself to be carried off was not his fault, but to have allowed himself to be inebriated was his weakness. There had been a moment, a decisive moment, when the question was proposed. This sparkle Phaedro had placed a dilemma before Gwynplaine, and had given him clear power to decide his fate by a word. Gwynplaine might have said no. He had said yes. From that yes, uttered in a moment of dizziness, everything had sprung. Gwynplaine realized this now in the bitter aftertaste of that consent. Nevertheless, for he debated with himself, was it then so great a wrong to take possession of his right, of his patrimony, of his heritage, of his house, and as a patrician of the rank of his ancestors, as an orphan of the name of his father? What had he accepted? A restitution. Made by whom? By providence. Then his mind revolted. Senseless acceptance. What a bargain had he struck! What a foolish exchange! He had trafficked with providence at a loss. How now? For an income of eighty thousand pound a year, for seven or eight titles, for ten or twelve palaces, for houses in town and castles in the country, for a hundred lackeys, for packs of hounds and carriages and armorial bearings, to be a judge and legislator, for a coronet and purple robes like a king, to be a baron and a marquis, to be a peer of England, he had given the hut of Ursus and the smile of Dea. For shipwreck and destruction in the surging immensity of greatness, he had bartered happiness. For the ocean, he had given the pearl. O oh, madman! O oh, fool! O oh, dupe! Yet nevertheless, and here the objection reappeared on firmer ground, in this fever of high fortune which had seized him, all had not been unwholesome. 
Perhaps there would have been selfishness in renunciation. Perhaps he had done his duty in the acceptance. Suddenly transformed into a lord, what ought he to have done? The complication of events produces perplexity of mind. This had happened to him. Duty gave contrary orders. Duty on all sides at once. Duty multiple and contradictory. This was the bewilderment which he had suffered. It was this that had paralyzed him, especially when he had not refused to take the journey from Corleone Lodge to the House of Lords. What we call rising in life is leaving the safe for the dangerous path. Which is thenceforth the straight line? Towards whom is our first duty? Is it towards those nearest to ourselves, or is it towards mankind generally? Do we not cease to belong to our own circumscribed circle and become part of the great family of all? As we ascend, we feel an increased pressure on our virtue. The higher we rise, the greater is the strain. The increase of right is an increase of duty. We come to many crossways, phantom roads perchance, and we imagine that we see the finger of conscience pointing each one of them out to us. Which shall we take? Change our direction? Remain where we are? Advance? Go back? What are we to do? That there should be crossroads in conscience is strange enough, but responsibility may be a labyrinth. And when a man contains an idea, when he is the incarnation of a fact, when he is a symbolical man, at the same time he is a man of flesh and blood, is not the responsibility still more oppressive? Thence the care-laden docility and the dumb anxiety of Gwynplaine. Thence his obedience, when summoned to take his seat. A pensive man is often a passive man. He had heard what he fancied was the command of duty itself. Was not that entrance into a place where oppression could be discussed and resisted the realization of one of his deepest aspirations? When he had been called upon to speak, he the fearful human scantling, he the living specimen of the despotic whims under which for six thousand years mankind has groaned in agony, had he the right to refuse? Had he the right to withdraw his head from under the tongue of fire descending from on high to rest upon him? In the obscure and giddy debate of conscience, what had he said to himself? This. The people are a silence. I will be the mighty advocate of that silence. I will speak for the dumb. I will speak of the little to the great, of the weak to the powerful. This is the purpose of my fate. God wills what he wills, and does it. It was a wonder that Hardquinone's flask, in which was the metamorphosis of Gwynplaine into Lord Clancharlie, should have floated for fifteen years on the ocean, on the billows, in the surf, through the storms, and that all the raging of the sea did it no harm. But I can see the reason. There are destinies with secret springs. I have the key of mine and know its enigma. I am predestined. I have a mission. I will be the poor man's lord. I will speak for the speechless with despair. I will translate inarticulate remonstrance. I will translate the mutterings, the groans, the murmurs, the voices of the crowd, their ill-spoken complaints, their unintelligible words, and those animal-like cries which ignorance and suffering put into men's mouths. The clamour of men is as inarticulate as the howling of the wind. They cry out, but they are understood. So that cries become equivalent to silence, and silence with them means throwing down their arms. This forced disarmament calls for help. I will be their help. 
I will be the denunciation. I will be the word of the people. Thanks to me, they shall be understood. I will be the bleeding mouth from which the gag has been torn. I will tell everything. This will be great indeed. Yes, it is fine to speak for the dumb, but to speak to the deaf is sad. And that was the second part in the drama. Alas, he had failed irremediably. The elevation in which he had believed, the high fortune, had melted away like a mirage. And what a fall to be drowned in a surge of laughter. He had believed himself strong. He who during so many years had floated with observant mind on the wide sea of suffering, he who had brought back out of the great shadow so touching a cry, he had been flung against that huge rock the frivolity of the fortunate. He believed himself an avenger, he was but a clown. He thought that he wielded the thunderbolt, he did but tickle. In place of emotion he met with mockery. He sobbed, they burst into gaiety, and under that gaiety he had sunk, fatally submerged. And what had they laughed at? At his laugh. So that trace of a hateful act, of which he must keep the mark for ever, mutilation carved in everlasting gaiety, the stigmata of laughter, image of the sham contentment of nations under their oppressors, that mask of joy produced by torture, that abyss of grimace, which he carried on his features, the scar which signified Regis, the attestation of a crime committed by the king towards him, and the symbol of crime committed by royalty towards the people. That it was which had triumphed over him, that it was which had overwhelmed him, so that the accusation against the executioner turned into sentence upon the victim. What a prodigious denial of justice! Royalty, having had satisfaction of his father, had had satisfaction of him. The evil that had been done had served as pretext and as motive for the evil which remained to be done. Against whom were the lords angered? Against the torturer? No, against the tortured. Here is the throne, there the people. Here James the Second, there Gwynplaine. That confrontation indeed brought to light an outrage and a crime. What was the outrage? Complaint. What was the crime? Suffering. Let misery hide itself in silence, otherwise it becomes treason. And those men who had dragged Gwynplaine on the hurdle of sarcasm, were they wicked? No, but they too had their fatality. They were happy. They were executioners ignorant of the fact. They were good-humoured. They saw no use in Gwynplaine. He opened himself to them, he tore out his heart to show them, and they cried, Go on with your play. But sharpest sting, he had laughed himself. The frightful chain which tied down his soul hindered his thoughts from rising to his face. His disfigurement reached even his senses, and while his conscience was indignant, his face gave it the lie and jested. Then all was over. He was the laughing man, the caryatid of the weeping world. He was an agony petrified in hilarity, carrying the weight of a universe of calamity, and walled up for ever with the gaiety, the ridicule, and the amusement of others. Of all the oppressed, of whom he was the incarnation, he partook the hateful fate 
to be a desolation not believed in. They jeered at his distress. To them he was but an extraordinary buffoon, lifted out of some frightful condensation of misery, escaped from his prison, changed to a deity, risen from the dregs of the people to the foot of the throne, mingling with the stars, and who, having once amused the damned, now amused the elect. All that was in him of generosity, of enthusiasm, of eloquence, of heart, of soul, of fury, of anger, of love, of inexpressible grief, ended in a burst of laughter. And he proved, as he had told the lords, that this was not the exception, but that it was the normal, ordinary, universal, unlimited, sovereign fact, so amalgamated with the routine of life that they took no account of it. The hungry pauper laughs, the beggar laughs, the felon laughs, the prostitute laughs, the orphan laughs to gain his bread. The slave laughs, the soldier laughs, the people laugh. Society is so constituted that every perdition, every indigence, every catastrophe, every fever, every ulcer, every agony, is resolved on the surface of the abyss into one frightful grin of joy. Now he was that universal grin, and that grin was himself. The law of heaven, the unknown power which governs, had willed that a spectre visible and palpable, a spectre of flesh and bone, should be the synopsis of the monstrous parody which we call the world, and he was that spectre, immutable fate. He had cried, pity for those who suffer, in vain. He had striven to awake pity, he had awakened horror. Such is the law of apparitions. But while he was a spectre, he was also a man. Here was the heart-rending complication, a spectre without, a man within. A man more than any other, perhaps, since his double fate was the synopsis of all humanity. And he felt that humanity was at once present in him and absent from him. There was in his existence something insurmountable. What was he? A disinherited heir? No, for he was a lord. Was he a lord? No, for he was a rebel. He was the light-bearer, a terrible spoil-sport. He was not Satan, certainly, but he was Lucifer. His entrance, with his torch in his hand, was sinister. Sinister for whom? For the sinister. Terrible to whom? To the terrible. Therefore they rejected him. Enter their order, be accepted by them, never. The obstacle which he carried in his face was frightful, but the obstacle which he carried in his ideas was still more insurmountable. His speech was to them more deformed than his face. He had no possible thought in common with the world of the great and powerful, in which he had by a freak of fate been born, and from which another freak of fate had driven him out. There was between men and his face a mask, and between society and his mind a wall. In mixing from infancy a wandering mountebank with that vast and tough substance which is called the crowd, in saturating himself with the attraction of the multitude, and impregnating himself with the great soul of mankind, he had lost, in the common sense of the whole of mankind, the particular sense of the reigning classes. On their heights he was impossible. He had reached them wet with water from the well of truth. The odour of the abyss was on him. He was repugnant 
to those princes perfumed with lies, to those who live on fiction truth is disgusting, and he who thirsts for flattery vomits the real when he has happened to drink it by mistake. That which Gwynplaine brought was not fit for their table. For what was it? Reason, wisdom, justice, and they rejected them with disgust. There were bishops there. He brought God into their presence. Who was this intruder? The two poles repel each other. They can never amalgamate, for transition is wanting. Hence the result, a cry of anger, when they were brought together in terrible juxtaposition. All misery concentrated in a man, face to face with all pride concentrated in a caste. To accuse is useless. To state is sufficient. Gwynplaine, meditating on the limits of his destiny, proved the total uselessness of his effort. He proved the deafness of high places. The privileged have no hearing on the side next the disinherited. Is it their fault? Alas, no. It is their law. Forgive them. To be moved would be to abdicate. Of lords and princes expect nothing. He who is satisfied is inexorable. For those that have their fill, the hungry do not exist. The happy ignore and isolate themselves. On the threshold of their paradise, as on the threshold of hell, must be written, Leave all hope behind. Gwynplaine had met with the reception of a spectre entering the dwelling of the gods. Here all that was within him rose in rebellion. No, he was no spectre, he was a man. He told them, he shouted to them, that he was man. He was not a phantom, he was palpitating flesh. He had a brain and he thought. He had a heart and he loved. He had a soul and he hoped. Indeed, to have hoped overmuch was his whole crime. Alas, he had exaggerated hope into believing in that thing at once so brilliant and so dark, which is called society. He who was without had re-entered it. It had at once and at first sight made him its three offers and given him its three gifts, marriage, family, and caste. Marriage? He had seen prostitution on the threshold. Family? His brother had struck him and was awaiting him the next day sword in hand. Caste? It had burst into laughter in his face, at him the patrician, at him the wretch. It had rejected almost before it had admitted him so that his first three steps into the dense shadow of society had opened three gulfs beneath him. And it was by a treacherous transfiguration that his disaster had begun, and catastrophe had approached him with the aspect of apotheosis. Ascend had signified descend. His fate was the reverse of Job's. It was through prosperity that adversity had reached him. O tragical enigma of life! Behold what pitfalls! A child he had wrestled against the night, and had been stronger than it. A man he had wrestled against destiny, and had overcome it. Out of disfigurement he had created success, and out of misery happiness. Of his exile he had made an asylum. A vagabond he had wrestled against space, and like the birds of the air he had found his crumb of bread. Wild and solitary he had wrestled against the crowd, and had made it his friend. An athlete he had wrestled against that lion, the people, and he had tamed it. 
indigent he had wrestled against distress he had faced the dull necessity of living and from amalgamating with misery every joy of his heart he had at length made riches out of poverty he had believed himself the conqueror of life of a sudden he was attacked by fresh forces reaching him from unknown depths this time with menaces no longer but with smiles and caresses love serpent-like and sensual had appeared to him who was filled with angelic love the flesh had tempted him who had lived on the ideal he had heard words of voluptuousness like cries of rage he had felt the clasp of a woman's arms like the convolutions of a snake to the illumination of truth had succeeded the fascination of falsehood for it is not the flesh that is real but the soul the flesh is ashes the soul is flame for the little circle allied to him by the relationship of poverty and toil which was his true and natural family had been substituted the social family his family in blood but of tainted blood and even before he had entered it he found himself face to face with an intended fratricide alas he had allowed himself to be thrown back into that society of which Brantome, whom he had not read, wrote, The son has a right to challenge his father. A fatal fortune had cried to him, Thou art not of the crowd, thou art of the chosen, and had opened the ceiling above his head like a trap in the sky, and had shot him up through this opening, causing him to appear wild and unexpected in the midst of princes and masters. Then suddenly he saw around him, instead of the people who applauded him, the lords who cursed him. Mournful metamorphosis, ignominious ennobling, rude spoliation of all that had been his happiness, pillage of his life by derision, Gwynplaine Clancharlie, the lord the mountebank, torn out of his old lot, out of his new lot, by the beaks of those eagles. What availed it that he had commenced life by immediate victory over obstacle? Of what good had been his early triumphs? Alas, the fall must come ere destiny be complete. So half against his will, half of it, because after he had done with the wapentake he had to do with Barkle Pedro, and he had given a certain amount of consent to his abductions, he had left the real for the chimerical, the true for the false, Dea for Hosiana love for pride, liberty for power, labour proud and poor for opulence full of unknown responsibilities, the shade in which is God for the lurid flames in which the devils dwell, paradise for Olympus. He had tasted the golden fruit, he was now spitting out the ashes to which it turned. Lamentable result, defeat, failure, fall into ruin, insolent expulsion of all his hopes, frustrated by ridicule immeasurable disillusion and what was there for him in the future if he looked forward to the morrow what did he see a drawn sword the point of which was against his breast and the hilt in the hands of his brother he could see nothing but the hideous flash of that sword Hosiana and the house of lords made up the background in a monstrous chiaroscuro full of tragic shadows and that brother seemed so brave and chivalrous. Alas! he had hardly seen the Tom Jim Jack who had defended Gwynplaine, the Lord David who had defended Lord Clancharlie. 
but he had had time to receive a blow from him and to love him. He was crushed. He felt it impossible to proceed further. Everything had crumbled about him. Besides, what was the good of it? All weariness dwells in the depths of despair. The trial had been made. It could not be renewed. Gwynplaine was like a gamester who has played all his trumps away, one after the other. He had allowed himself to be drawn to a fearful gambling table without thinking what he was about, for so subtle is the poison of illusion he had staked Dea against Hosiana, and had gained a monster. He had staked Ursus against a family, and had gained an insult. He had played his mountebank platform against his seat in the Lords. For the applause which was his he had gained insult. His last card had fallen on that fatal green cloth, the deserted bowling green. Gwynplaine had lost. Nothing remained but to pay. Pay up, wretched man. The thunder-stricken lie still. Gwynplaine remained motionless. Anybody perceiving him from afar in the shadow, stiff and without movement, might have fancied that he saw an upright stone. Hell, the serpent, and reverie are torturous. Gwynplaine was descending the sepulchral spirals of the deepest thought. He reflected on that world of which he had just caught a glimpse with the icy contemplation of a last look. Marriage but no love, family but no brotherly affection, riches but no conscience, beauty but no modesty, justice but no equity, order but no equilibrium, authority but no right, power but no intelligence, splendor but no light, inexorable balance-sheet, he went throughout the supreme vision in which his mind had been plunged. He examined successively destiny, situation, society, and himself. What was destiny? A snare. Situation? Despair. Society? Hatred. And himself? A defeated man. In the depths of his soul he cried. Society is the stepmother, nature is the mother. Society is the world of the body, nature is the world of the soul. The one tends to the coffin, to the deal-box in the grave, to the earthworms, and ends there. The other tends to expanded wings, to transformation into the morning light, to ascend into the firmament, and there revives into new life. By degrees a paroxysm came over him, like a sweeping surge. At the close of events there is always a last flash in which all stands revealed once more. He who judges meets the accused face to face. Gwynplaine reviewed all that society and all that nature had done for him. How kind had nature been to him! How she, who is the soul, had succoured him! All had been taken from him, even his features. The soul had given him all back. All, even his features because there was on earth a heavenly blind girl made expressly for him, who saw not his ugliness, and who saw his beauty. And it was from this that he had allowed himself to be separated. From that adorable girl, from his own adopted one, from her tenderness, from her divine blind gaze, the only gaze on earth that saw him, that he had strayed. 
Dea was his sister because he felt between them the grand fraternity of above, the mystery which contains the whole of heaven. Dea, when he was a little child, was his virgin, because every child has his virgin, and at the commencement of life a marriage of souls is always consummated in the plentitude of innocence. Dea was his wife, for theirs was the same nest on the highest branch of the deep-rooted tree of Hymen. Dea was still more. She was his light, for without her all was void and nothingness. And for him her head was crowned with rays. What would become of him without Dea? What could he do with all that was himself? Nothing in him could live without her. How, then, could he have lost sight of her for a moment? O oh, unfortunate man! He allowed distance to intervene between himself and his star, and by the unknown and terrible laws of gravitation in such things, distance is immediate loss. Where was she, the star? Dea! 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 Alas, he had lost her light. Take away the star, and what is the sky? A black mass. But why, then, had all this befallen him? Oh, what happiness had been his! For him God had remade Eden. Too close was the resemblance, alas, even to allowing the serpent to enter, but this time it was the man who had been tempted. He had been drawn without, and then by a frightful snare had fallen into a chaos of murky laughter, which was hell. Oh, grief, oh, grief! How frightful seemed all that had fascinated him! That Hosiana, fearful creature, half beast, half goddess, Gwynplaine was now on the reverse side of his elevation, and he saw the other aspect of that which had dazzled him. It was baleful. His peerage was deformed, his coronet was hideous, his purple robe a funeral garment, those palaces infected, those trophies, those statues, those armorial bearings sinister. The unwholesome and treacherous air poisoned those who breathed it, and turned them mad. How brilliant the rags of the mountebank, Gwynplaine, appeared to him now! Alas, where was the green box, poverty, joy, the sweet wandering life, wandering together like the swallows? They never left each other then. He saw her every minute, morning, evening. At table their knees, their elbows touched. They drank from the same cup. The sun shone through the pane, but it was only the sun, and Dea was love. At night they slept not far from each other, and the dream of Dea came and hovered over Gwynplaine, and the dream of Gwynplaine spread itself mysteriously above the head of Dea. When they awoke, they could be never quite sure that they had not exchanged kisses in the azure mists of dreams. Dea was all innocence, Ursus all wisdom. They wandered from town to town, and they had for provision and for stimulant the frank, loving gaiety of the people. They were angel vagabonds with enough of humanity to walk the earth and not enough of wings to fly away. And now all had disappeared. Where was it gone? Was it possible that it was all effaced? What wind from the tomb had swept over them? All was eclipsed, all was lost, alas! 
power irresistible and deaf to appeal which weighs down the poor flings its shadow over all and is capable of anything what had been done to them and he had not been there to protect them to fling himself in front of them to defend them as a lord with his title his peerage and his sword as a mountebank with his fists and his nails and here arose a bitter reflection perhaps the most bitter of all well no he could not have defended them it was he himself who had destroyed them it was to save him lord clancharlie from them it was to isolate his dignity from contact with them that the infamous omnipotence of society had crushed them the best way in which he could protect them would be to disappear and then the cause of their persecution would cease he out of the way they would be allowed to remain in peace into what icy channel was his thought beginning to run oh why had he allowed himself to be separated from dea was not his first duty towards her to serve and to defend the people but dea was the people dea was an orphan she was blind she represented humanity oh what had they done to them cruel smart of regret his absence had left the field free for the catastrophe he would have shared their fate either they would have been taken and carried away with him or he would have been swallowed up with them and now what would become of him without them gwynplaine without dea was it possible without dea was to be without everything it was all over now the beloved group was for ever buried in irreparable disappearance all was spent besides condemned and damned as gwynplaine was what was the good of further struggle he had nothing more to expect either of men or of heaven dea dea where is dea lost what lost he who has lost his soul can regain it but through one outlet death gwynplaine tragically distraught placed his hand firmly on the parapet as on a solution and looked at the river it was his third night without sleep fever had come over him his thoughts which he believed to be clear were blurred he felt an imperative need of sleep he remained for a few instants leaning over the water its darkness offered him a bed of boundless tranquillity in the infinity of shadow sinister temptation he took off his coat which he folded and placed on the parapet then he unbuttoned his waistcoat as he was about to take it off his hand struck against something in the pocket it was the red book which had been given him by the librarian of the house of lords he drew it from the pocket examined it in the vague light of the night and found a pencil in it with which he wrote on the first blank that he found these two lines i depart let my brother david take my place and may he be happy then he signed fermain clancharlie peer of england he took off his waistcoat and placed it upon the coat then his hat which he placed upon the waistcoat in the hat he laid the red book open at the page on which he had written seeing a stone lying on the ground he picked it up and placed it in the hat having done all this he looked up into the deep shadow above him then his head sank slowly as if drawn by an invisible thread towards the abyss there was a hole in the masonry near the base of the parapet 
he placed his foot in it so that his knee stood higher than the top, and scarcely an effort was necessary to spring over it. He clasped his hands behind his back and leaned over. So be it, said he. And he fixed his eyes on the deep waters. Just then he felt a tongue licking his hands. He shuddered and turned round. Homo was behind him. End of section 100 Recording by John Trevithick.